update that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm a Pisces. (laughs) What? That was hard for me. I don't usually talk about this. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant and a Libra. Do you even wonder why you even know that? I mean, do you believe in horoscopes? Do you get your palms read? No, no. I I am a very anti-superstition person. I I believe in choices. But you know your sign. Yeah. What are we going to do about that? I mean, you, you want me to sing Age of Aquarius? I was thinking more of this. That's what I wanted to talk about this week. Fate versus agency. We're not going to have a news peg because fate doesn't need a news peg because it contains all of us. Although you could say that every news story you've read since November 9th, 2016, has been worried about the struggle between fate and agency. Was it Hillary's fault? Was it Facebook's fault? Was it our fault? Or are we just arrogant fools to imagine that we have control over what happens to us and our country? Meaning, are we fated to be doing this podcast? Oh, we're totally fated to be doing this podcast. At the end of the semester, with the theses, the MFA theses, piled around my desk like tall late May snowdrifts because I live in Minnesota and we have recently had May and April snow. I'm sorry. Uh, it's really, it's it's kind of the pits. Um, one begins to wonder about fate, which is why this week we've brought in the poet and nonfiction writer Megan O'Rourke to talk about the role fate plays in her work. And first, we're going to talk to the writer Jess Rao author of the critically acclaimed 2014 novel, Your Face and Mine, and the forthcoming essay collection, White Flights, which is coming out from Grey Wolf in 2019. Jess, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Hey, Jess, how you doing? Hi, Whitney. How are you? <laughs> so Suki uh, starts talking to me about how she's noticing more and more people whom she's running into are interested in the sort of the arcane, the superstitious readings that determine your future, tarot cards, horoscopes, the Ouija board which James Merrill wrote about in a different age. But but before we get into the possible causes for this phenomenon, can we just discuss to what extent this actually is a phenomenon? Yes, I was. In fact, I was just at a, uh, a reading uh, last week for uh, uh, Alexander Chi's new essay collection. And uh, the first thing he spoke about was tarot cards, <laughs> actually. Uh, and he took some questions from the audience, and they had a long discussion about experts in tarot cards. This is something I know absolutely nothing about. So, um, I, absolutely, it's it's uh, it's striking to me, and um, I think your observation is uh, very much on point. That um, you know, we live in an age of uh, tremendous uh, uncertainty, and um, at times like that. Any kind of, um, you know, provisional device, which is sort of what tarot is, right? Uh, you know, becomes sort of, you know, for writers, it just it becomes uh, interesting. Maybe not, you know, taken uh, literally, but um, you know, it's. I mean, essentially, what tarot is is a kind of. Um, it's not so much a. I mean, it is a tarot is a is a, as I understand it is predictive, but it's also about interpretation it's sort of like the ej yeah. in that way it's about it's about uh interpreting the present as much as it is as it is about um just laying out you know the timeline of the future i'm related to a lot of people who feel strongly about horoscopes and auspicious times and your star chart etc um and which at least in the hindu traditions in which i was raised are sometimes important and then a member of our family before their wedding had her star chart read by one person and then kind of forgot some things and wanted to have it read again and had it read again by a different person and got a set of different answers. Uh-huh. And the older generation of my family was sort of like shrug. No, this doesn't surprise us. This doesn't trouble us. And I had never really thought about the importance of the interpretation before that. And they were just really, they sort of were like, this is, well, that's what, that's what happens. That ha- that's how it, that's how it goes. It, it doesn't matter who actually reads the cards and it doesn't mean that either one of those things was wrong. Right. Right. Well, there's kind of been a literary tradition in this. I mean, I think about, 
I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, but Yates was interested in the occult. You know, he was interested in that automatic writing business. You know, I mean, you can look at uh, Sylvia Plath has written. You know, she wrote about Ouija, uh, the Ouija board, uh, along with Merrill. I wonder why. You know, like uh, it's just, it's a particular thing that in, that comes into vogue with writers at certain different times. You know, um, I guess the kind of I'm curious as to why it would be in vogue now. This is a time when um, there's a, a tremendous uh, sense that, um, you know, the, that the flow of time itself has, um, has, has changed. I mean, and I'm, here I'm talking about sort of cultural, political, uh, uh, historical time. Mm. Uh, and this is something I've been, I've been, uh, I've been writing about um, in my sort of very tail end revisions of of white flights, um, trying to bring in a little bit more of the sense that, you know, after the 2016 election, there really was a sense of a eruption in time. There was a sense of a kind of a, a violation of, um, what, what a lot of people perceived as sort of the arc of history. And I'm using that yes. term for Martin Luther King, you know, the arc of history, mm-hmm. for justice. So, you know, I think in a, in, in a, in a kind of uh, casual way, um, a lot of people maybe had heard that phrase or something like it, and just especially people who considered themselves to be politically progressive, you know, and just in terms of the word progressive itself, they considered themselves to be people who were riding the, you know, riding the train of, of progress. Yes. Um, and that it was going to take us somewhere. <laughs> it's so interesting because that directly relates to this, some stuff that we've talked about on the podcast about the, the politics of inevitability versus the politics of eternity. Leaders like someone like Putin or, or Trump being politicians who, who practice the politics of, of eternity, meaning they want stasis. They want to end progress. They don't. Yeah. They're, 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 and so there actually is an actual movement against this idea that, that history bends toward progress and things get better, that there's an actual resistance against that progress in time that's happening right now. Is that yeah. Timothy Snyder? Yes. You know, in a sense, we could say there's three different um, general sort of schemas that are all competing for attention. So there's, you know, the idea of progressive time, that is that there's an an arc of history and that uh, things are slowly getting better. There's, you know, what, what Whitney was talking about, sort of citing Timothy Snyder, this idea of, you know, people who ju- of, of stasis or eternity um, of not you know, of sort of a restoring a, you know, what's, what's supposed to be a, uh, an eternal order of some kind. Right. And then there's also apocalyptic time, which is also, which is, you know, oh, no, always, not that time. <laughs> always very much present in Western culture, but intensely present now because of the, um, because of the sense of ecological, um, apocalypse, which, you know, I, I think the sense of ecological apocalypse is, it's not that it's overstated, but it's vague and all-encompassing enough to um, take on the sort of traditional Western quality of the end of days, which is a you know basic sort of formulation of Western culture and aesthetics that goes all the way back to the beginnings of Christianity. For a lot of people who would define themselves as progressive or liberal or even leftist um, are in this weird position today of being simultaneously... Um, optimists and catastrophists, you know, in the sense that, like, you st- you still want to believe in in uh, political progress and change and hope. On the other hand, you think that the climate is uh, essentially dooming us, and you know, the whole of hu- human civilization may be gone in a hundred years. So, in the middle of this discussion, when Sugi and I were first talking about this topic, you know, well, there's a phrase that I remembered that you talk about something called white dream time. Could you talk about that concept? Yeah, so what I meant, this is something that I, I use in, in your face and mine um, as a way of talking about my own experience. Really, you know, when I say white dream time, I'm talking about uh, in the ability to distance oneself from a feeling that you're in any kind of personal danger or even that um, political or social forces affect you directly. I, I grew up in in high school. I was living in Baltimore, and you know Baltimore is a is a majority black city. And I was heavily involved in social movements and in in uh, food pantry and in 
listening to a lot of hip hop music, and you know that was that was that that was what Baltimore was as a place. And then I, I went to Yale, and um, it, it wasn't just that Yale was overwhelmingly white, though it was. It was um, it was a way in which the politics and the aesthetics of the city. Um, hip hop, graffiti, all those kinds of things that were going on in the early '90s were just not part of the world of Yale, and I, I, I felt sort of ridiculous bringing them with me, and so I sort of dropped them because that's something that white people can do: uh, pick up an aesthetic and then and then drop it if it doesn't feel right, or if it doesn't feel convenient, or if it doesn't feel "quote unquote" authentic. And I, you know, and I went back into what you know what I would call a kind of a white dream time, which is essentially a, a kind of a um, a state of wishful thinking. And uh, it had a real hold on me. And it wasn't until in my mid twenties, when I was going to graduate school in creative writing, that I, I, I started reading and listening to James Baldwin, uh, who talks about white dream time very directly. He he calls it the sunlit uh, prison. That's his phrase of the white American experience. That I, I really that I realized sort of what had happened to me. That's so interesting. I think one of the reasons that I mean, one way that this is happening now or happened, you know, with the election of Donald Trump was that when he was voted into the White House, a lot of very literate, very educated people, particularly people in the media, uh, which is of course dominated by people of privilege and and white Americans a lot of those people felt for the first time that they were no longer in control of the world. And I think I, I mean, I was also surprised. I think I wasn't as surprised as some other folks, but, you know, I heard sort of repeatedly this narrative, you know, they, these folks had done everything right. They'd gone to good schools, bought the right furniture, lived in the right neighborhoods, read the right books. And yet suddenly they were no longer masters of their own fate. You cannot be guaranteed good test results or good results. And so they, you know, here are the tarot cards. Um, and of course, I know, I mean, I know people who turn to those cards for other reasons, but there do also seem to be people who are surfacing talk of fate as mm-hmm. a way to deal with mm-hmm. their own responsibility or lack thereof. Yeah, I mean, um, I, you know, I was I was surrounded by that feeling, too. And, I, I th- you know, I think it's. Um, instructive to go back and look at the Saturday Night Live skit that uh, with Dave Chappelle that aired the week the weekend after the election where Dave Chappelle is a guest in a house full of white liberals at an, at a uh, you know at a party that's supposed to be celebrating Hillary Clinton's election right. we watch as the you know as the sort of crisis unfolds and Dave Chappelle the whole time is sort of sitting back with this very sardonic look on his face uh Basically saying, you know, the the Klan guy is going to get elected. Like, if you put a Klan guy on the ballot, uh, I forget exactly what phrase he uses, but you know, if you put a white supremacist on the ballot, he's going to win. So, I mean, I you know, I would say that uh, the, a sense of political and racial, uh, for lack of a better word, a sense of an emergency began in August of. 2014 with Michael Brown's death, with Michael Brown's murder, and the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. And what was striking to me at that time, this is also the exact same moment that my novel was published, what was striking to me at that time was that um, when Trayvon Martin was murdered, you know, when there were other police killings, it had been in the news for maybe a week or two, and then the news cycle had moved beyond it. And what happened in August of 2014 was that the news cycle never moved beyond it. There was, you know, there was Eric Garner, there was another case and another case, and then there was the Black Lives Matter movement, which became, you know, a mass movement. Um, and there was this sense in which um, a feeling of, um, you know, a feeling of national emergency around. Uh, you know, I, that that feels like an awkward phrase, but to me, it's really it's you know that it's it's the the sort of phrase that sums it up in the sense of crisis. What I'm really talking about is crisis. Yeah, and the connection um, that I feel like is a little bit like when you talk, start talking about Black Lives Matter and uh, Trayvon Martin and and police killings, right? What you know, and I think Sugi's question is trying to get at this also. You know, I feel like you know 
you and I, Jess, went to really nice, and so did Sugi, for that matter. <laughs> she probably went to a better school than we did. We all went to nice schools, right? Um, and uh, But there's a sense and a belief that, uh, and I think this is particularly true for white Americans like me, that you have, that your individual choices give you agency. And sure. when you are a, a, a minority population in America, you don't feel that way. And police killings are an expression of the of white authority saying, like, you don't have agency, right? You're subject to our power. I mean, in that's, a very bleak right. and just direct way, right? Yeah. And then yeah. when Trump gets elected, when we're talking about the media and people, he starts to, to attack media. He starts to attack white wealthy, educated elites in a way that white, wealthy, educated elites have not been attacked before. And they start to feel, hey, uh, uh, we're not in charge. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's the connection that I think is part of what's happening here. Does that make sense to you? It, it does. I, you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting to go back and um, listen to some lectures that Cornell West gave in the sort of in the mid 2000s called the gifts of black folk in an age of terrorism, where he's really talking about post 9-11 America. And um, he talks and he talks about the ways in which the black American experience of uh, essentially the, the experience of suffering and, you know, the experience, the experience of um, utter marginalization and dehumanization uh, is very instructive in post 9-11 America. Uh, for, forgive me for, I'm, I'm quoting uh, the words he uses. He talks about it as uh, niggerization. That's the word he uses for uh, the experience of um, Americans after 9-11 in the sense of transforming, you know, Americans into a population that feels vulnerable, that feels under attack, that yes. feels why do they why do they hate us? And I think in some ways the roots of this present political moment uh, can be traced back to uh, not only the the 2008 financial crisis, which really we, all, all that really did was it just pushed forward the process of transforming uh, most Americans into financially precarious and vulnerable citizens because, I mean, because of historical forces like the collapse of unions and et cetera, but also 9-11 as a decisive moment where Americans uh, as a whole population felt under attack for the first time. And so that, you know, this process of turning um, white Americans in particular into people who felt under attack, who felt um, uh, financially precarious and then, you know, I would say what happened in the Black Lives Matter movement, and this has been borne out by sociologists and, you know, reporters and other people, especially after 2016, is, you know, there was this moment where the optimism around Obama and the, the sense that, like, race relations had really reached a turning point with the 2008 election, it really turned after 2014 because there was this sense that the Black Lives Matter movement was, quote unquote, racially dividing uh, America again. And what, you know, I, I think in some sense, like what that did is it, it created the sense of uh, white racial um, vulnerability and victimization that Trump sensed and uh, maximized. Yeah. I think and I think, you know, the, yeah. the idea of this, like, getting back to the tarot cards and that sort of stuff, when people feel powerless, which I think is a new experience for many white Americans, uh, at least within, you know, current memory, right? I mean, you could say that experience happened in the Great Depression as well, perhaps. Um, but when people feel powerless, they turn to other narratives to try to make sense of it, conspiracy theories sure. or whatever. Yeah, I think that also, I mean, a lot of these traditions are, they're also traditions that other communities have turned to for much longer. I mean, there are now, I can't speak authoritatively about like sort of the use of horoscopes in all American communities. But I mean, some of this seems to me like, like in general, so much of the rhetoric of individuality and individualism and free will and our ability to pursue happiness, et cetera, is built into the very foundation of American governing American documents. And I wonder about the ways that that's seeped into our conversations about American storytelling, like, like the idea that 
it seems to me like white Americans are new to thinking of themselves as a collective, even though, of course, they have been a collective power all along. And other communities have thought of themselves as communities, perhaps for much longer, and have had to, and also have told their stories in those ways, which maybe in some ways these traditions um, help with. And I think, you know, of course, this also has to do with questions of like blame and responsibility when we talk about individuals, um, right? I mean, I can think of like, for example, like a relative of mine who if I like sort of tell them a story about, um, gosh, so many, so many of my, so many of my relatives appear in this podcast as the relative, um, the relative (laughs) who sort of says, the relative who sort of says, um, well, you know, couldn't you have done this? Couldn't you have done that? And at first, um, I used to sort of be like, yeah, I guess I could have done that. And then eventually I sort of realized that a lot of the conversation, in response to the stories I was telling were about ways that I could fix the situation, but I often wasn't in positions to fix situations that I was telling them about because of a marginalized position or an entrenched structure that didn't give me room to move. And so I've become really interested in the ways in which we tell the stories of of communities and collectives in America. Like how does we operate? And then also how do we tell the stories of people who have agency, but maybe a different kind of agency than the kind that has come to the forefront traditionally of, of American fiction? I mean, this isn't necessarily right. Like, I mean, how do we, how do we think about, how do we think about that? Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, this is uh, one of the main themes of, of my book of essays, white flights, where you have in the in the in the in in white American fiction of the last forty or fifty years, there's such an emphasis on the individual, and particularly emphasis on uh, narratives in which individuals are essentially alone. Um, they're 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 isolated, uh, whether by a kind of literary, uh, literary uh, kind of literary device, like in Raymond Carver stories, um, or they're you know geographically, physically isolated, say in a book like Jim Harrison's Legends of the Fall or Cormac McCarthy's The Road, where you literally have like one person in an empty, you know, supposedly empty landscape. And to me, the way I describe this is as this um, almost an obsession with the idea of the autonomy of the imagination. Uh, And this is something that a lot of scholars have written about, the way in which the white American imagination imagines itself as essentially standing against standing as an individual mind against an empty landscape. And the empty landscape draws attention to the individual mind with a kind of a sharp perspective or sharp uh, relief. And of course, that's, you know, that's, that's a, um, that's a fantasy. The idea of the autonomy of the imagination is a, is a fantasy. On the other hand, um, novels by fiction by people of color often gets read and interpreted as entirely an expression of a kind of ethnographic or sociological reality and that also is a is a is a fantasy and a total misuse mis- misreading of the fiction of somebody like Sandra Cisneros or Toni Morrison or Juno Diaz or John Edgar Wideman um, but it really you know it's a kind of a uh, you know, for lack of a better word, it's a kind of a literary apartheid that um, to some degree, I think, has broken down in the last decade or decade and a half, uh, but still very much operates. I think if you go out into the world of American fiction in terms of, you know, bookstores and book clubs and book reviewers and interviewers and, and uh, you know, even other podcasts, there's still this kind of um, reflexive reflexive dividing division, I should say, between the way that white writers are interpreted and talked about and the way that writers of color are uh, interpreted and talked about and also expected to um, expected to operate. That is the way that they're expected to write. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think that Suki and I, you know, both studied with James McPherson and, and, and McPherson was, you know, someone who talked about this all the time. Uh, uh-huh. And was sort of very, I mean, he was incredibly influential for me because he said, "You're not going. You should not do that. You should not live in a in a white apartheid literary world. You should write yeah. about yeah. race. You look at Melville. Look at what these other writers have done, and look at how important this is in American life." Mm-hmm. So you know, I mean, my my writing career wouldn't exist without that. But I I sort of think about Kansas City as a community. So you can't. I realized at a certain point, like. 
you can't think about Kansas City just from a white perspective or you're not really right. thinking about the city. Right, um, right, right. And I, I write about James uh, James Allen McPherson uh, in the book. You know, I, I didn't go to Iowa. I never, I never met him. I never studied with him. Uh, what fascinates me about him is uh, his primarily his short story Elbow Room, which I think is just one of the great short stories, great fictional texts in the American literary tradition. Um, but it was also it was the end of his life as a fiction writer. It was the last thing he wrote. Uh, or the last thing he published. Uh, He may have written fiction after that, but the last piece of fiction he published, and he was only in his uh, mid-30s. This is in the late 1970s. And then he went on to have this decades-long teaching career, and he wrote a lot of nonfiction. But Elbow Room is this very interesting text, a very interesting story. It's about an interracial marriage in the 1970s that goes goes awry, you know, that that is... um, uh, a failed r- relationship um, and a kind of a cultural failure, a cultural impasse. And, you know, that text is, is that, that story is um, in Do some ways as an impasse. Cause I always sort of read it more optimistically than that. Well, you know, it has, it has both within it optimism and uh, uh, you know, I, I think optimism and, and pessimism, it has a kind of catastrophic quality and it also has a kind of, uh, you know, I can't go on, I'll go on quality. It has both those things, but it's the last thing he wrote. He yeah. stopped, you know, he was such a gifted writer. Um, and he was the, you know, exemplar of this tradition of, of Ralph Ellison and, uh, you know, Stanley Crouch and Albert Murray and all these people who were sort of in his intellectual world. But it was the last, you know, it was the, it was the, um, it was the it was the you know the the dagger in his career. You know, I, I frequently teach that story, and I taught it this semester, and actually gave it to my workshop um, after the election. I was yeah. just teaching at Iowa and gave it to my workshop, and um, I love giving people that story because there's it's so it's a very brave story in its form and in its content, and also. It just it contains so much about both these individuals who are choosing in their in their individual lives to operate in certain ways, but it does also address community in some ways, right? And and the right. role of storytellers within within community, and and it's told from this point of view. Where and the line that I always remember is about um, the narrator traveling to renew their supply of stories. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 Which is right. such myth, and which was something that was so important to Jim. The idea that um, we were we constantly need to reinvent myth for for the present um, to tell stories that will help us and tell the truth about the place that we are. And right, right. yeah, well, he says he says I went west <coughs> to renew my supply of stories. So he's talking about you know the narrator moving from the East Coast to mm-hmm. San Francisco, where the story takes place, and that you know of course that's. Uh, you know, Huck Finn and, you know, that there's such a, a sort of um, lucid American literary sensibility sort of embedded in that in that sense. And, it, you know, it very much picks up on what what Albert Murray wrote about in um, in his first book, The Omni-Americans, where he says that uh, he th- he he believes that, you know, all Americans should treat Nat Turner and Harriet Tubman as our central founding national figures. Um, and I think, you know, that's, to me, that's still, you know, this is, we're talking about almost 50 years later. To me, that's still a, such a provocative and important idea. One of the things about the, the story uh, um, also is that, you know, he's talking about an interracial couple and whether or not, and also their child, and whether or not their race determines their fate Right? Yeah, I mean, it relates exactly. back to what we're talking about. Do you have a choice to transcend that, Precisely. that category? Precisely. It's, it's entirely a it? story about fate. That's yeah. right. And so your novel, yeah. uh, your terrific novel, uh, Your Face and Mine, in a way, is also a meditation on whether or not a person's race determines their fate or can a person change their fate by changing their race right. or gain agency. Right. I wonder right. if you could just talk about the premise behind that novel and maybe read a passage from it. Yeah, so... Um, the the basic premise of the novel is that the narrator is a white man in his 30s 
who discovers that his childhood best friend, who he hasn't seen for 20 years, and who was a, a white uh, teenager when he last saw him, uh, is now um, a black man in his 30s who is has been completely transformed. Um, and uh, you know, as if as if by magic, as if by waving a wand. And in fact, what's happened is that his friend uh, underwent a, a crisis that he calls uh, racial dysphoria, and decided that he was uh, transracial, that he was actually a black man inside. And then went to Thailand and found a kind of a uh, incredibly skillful surgeon who transformed him into a into a black man. Okay, well, this, so this this moment in the novel, um, this is early in the novel, and the, the narrator, uh, whose name is Kelly, is very much an autobiographical character. Um, is this is a, a, a chapter where he's essentially reflecting on his own past as a white teenager uh, living in Baltimore, um, very much uh, involved in political activism and also. Uh, involved with this uh, food pantry. In this passage, he's talking about his uh, relationship with uh, the man, uh, an African-American man in his 40s, who ran the food pantry and lived at the food pantry, whose name is James. He was a Muslim, though I rarely discussed it. Not Nation of Islam, but NBIM, which he told me once stood for New Baltimore Integrated Mosque, a special congregation where Arabs and Pakistanis and black people all worship together. Occasionally, if I arrived early enough, I found him doing morning prayers outside in the empty lot next to the food pantry's row house. Inshallah, he always said, when we talked about how many bags we distribute that day, and Alan and I started doing it too as a joke first and then without thinking. Inshallah, we could sell 15 t-shirts. Inshallah, if you get into Wesleyan. It happened to be in the same moment that I came to know James that I read the autobiography of Malcolm X for the first time and came upon the rapper Paris who referred casually to blue-eyed devils and sons of Yakub as if talking about his Uncle Bill from Indiana. At the Black Cat Bookstore in Reed Street, I found copies of The Final Call and the New African Party newsletter, and I sat reading for an entire Sunday afternoon, one column of tiny print after another, mesmerized by explanations of how the downfall of white America, with three Ks, could be predicted by the phases of the sun, how school health clinics and Planned Parenthood were agents of genocide, how black people could use shea butter to boost their natural immunity to AIDS. There was something refreshing about being called a devil. This was in 1991 at the very peak of the crack wars when Baltimore was murder capital for the first time. I'd just gotten my license and I drove myself alone or sometimes with Alan down to the food pantry twice or three times a week. And the fact of being independent changed everything I saw as if I had to own the city for the first time, having to find my own parking spaces in it. It wasn't a matter of fear, though I carried mace with me everywhere, wore my wallet and keys on a biker chain and checked the back seat and trunk of the car religiously as carjackers were known to put a gun to your head from behind as you drove. What astonished me was how easily I could slip past the box hedges and pin oaks of Roland Park, the Victorians and Colonials and Tudors prim and quiet, into the derelict corridors, the bombed out storefronts, the vacants, the dealers in puffy jackets standing sentry on every corner, the Korean liquor stores with armor grates and triple thick glass in front of the register. This was a drive of 10 minutes. It's still, come to think of it, a drive of 10 minutes. This geography, I thought, was a crime. Someone had given me a postcard of Proudhon that I taped to my locker. Property is theft. How could it be anything else? How could I be anything other than a criminal by the fact of my pimply existence? Jess, thank you so much. I, oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I often, we have, we've been fortunate to have really great conversations on this podcast and talking to you. I feel like immediately running back to my desk and writing, which is wonderful. Um, uh, and I, thanks, cool. Jess. All right. well, thank, you. thank you, guys. This was really fun. And now we're thrilled to be joined by acclaimed poet, memoirist, and critic Megan O'Rourke. Megan is the author of the memoir, The Long Goodbye, and the poetry collections Half-Life, Once, and most recently, Sun and Days. She writes frequently about illness and health, among other subjects. Megan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's so great to have you here, and congratulations on Sun and Days. We were neighbors for about a year a few years ago, and I've missed our conversations about writing and life and the subject of this episode, fate. 
Did you guys really talk about fate with each other? Seriously? Like as friends? <laughs> yes, we actually did. Although I appreciate your skepticism. <laughs> I know. I was, I was quiet because I was just taking that in. And I was like, it's true. We did talk about fate among other less uh, substantial things, let's say. Well, I think that's yeah. really cool. I just, I'm trying to think if I had friends that I talked about fate with. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, All right, so look, when we think about how much control we have over our lives and what might be predetermined and how we tell ourselves a story of our own power and agency, I think of your 2008 poem, My Life as a Subject. Uh, How did you come to write that poem? And and maybe could you read it for us? Absolutely. I'd be happy to read the poem. Um, I'm so glad you you picked that poem because it's one of my favorite poems. Um, If one is allowed to have a favorite poem, one is written. Mostly one has, you know, unfavored pieces of writing that one has written. But actually, this here is my least favorite thing I've yeah. ever written. <laughs> this is the one that makes me cringe the most now. Um, but uh, that poem, it's partly been on my mind because it's, it's, it is very much in my mind a political poem, although it, it's written as a kind of fable or allegory and it might be easy to miss the politics of it. But it was a poem I wrote um, in the early 2000s under the George W. Bush presidency, thinking about, in particular, what prompted that poem was thinking about the presence of Guantanamo and what felt to me like my silent acquiescence in it, even though I wasn't really feeling acquiescence to to this. And, and so it's been very interesting to think about this poem for me in terms of the presidency we're under now. And that's why it's been definitely on my mind. You know, what does it mean to be both the subject of one's own life in the, in the sense of the first person teller and also subject in a, in a civic landscape that you're not entirely, um, you know, it's not the one you would choose necessarily. My life as a subject, and it's in parts. One, because I was born in a kingdom, there was a king. At times, the king was a despot at other times not. Axes flashed in the road at night, but if you closed your eyes, sitting on the well edge amongst your kinspeople and sang the ballads, then the silver did not appear to be broken. Such were the circumstances. They made a liar out of me. Did they change my spirit? Kiss in the night, the cry of owls, a bird fight. Two. We also had a queen wetted by the moon, and we her subjects softening in her sight. Three, what one had, the other had to have too. Soon parrots bloomed in every garden, and every daughter had a tuning fork jeweled with emeralds. Four, learning to hunt in the new empire, the king invited his subjects to send him their knives. He tested these knives on oranges, pomegranates, acorn squash, soft birches, stillborns, prisoners who had broken rules. He used them on the teeth of traitors. Five. When strangers massed at the border, the courtiers practiced subjection of the foreign. The court held a procession of twine, rope, gold, knives, and prostitutes with their vials of white powder. Smoke coursed into the courtyard, and we wrought hunger upon the bodies of strangers. I am sure you can imagine it. Really, what need is there for me to tell you? You were a stranger once, too, and I brought rope. Six. Afterward, I slept and let the dealers come to me alone with their jewels and their powders. Seven. At night, we debated the skin of language, questioned what might be revealed inside, a soft pink fruit, a woman in a field, or a shadow, sticky and loose as old jam. Our own dialect was abstract. We wished to understand not how things were, but what spectacle we might make from them. Eight. One day, a merchant came to court and brought moving pictures, the emperor's new delight, He tacked dark cloth to the windows and turned off the lights, cranking the machine and the film like a needle and thread, making stories we could insinuate our cold bodies into and find warmth. Light, dark, and the sliding images of courtiers merrily and the sliding images of courtiers merrily balancing monkeys on their heads as if this 
for an adequate story. Nine. <clears throat> Nine. And our queen, that hidden self, what became of her, slid into the night like a statue shivered into, into, shivered into shadows, knowing as a spider in retreat, the web, her mind, and in it, the fly. Ten. On Sundays, we flew kites to ensure our joy was seen by those who threatened to threaten us. The thread spooling out high in the purple sky and silver gelatin films being made, sliding through the cranking machines so that the barbarians could know we made images of ourselves coated in precious metal and sent them away indifferent to our wealth. I miss the citrus smell of spring on the plaza filled with young and long-limbed kite flyers. Eleven, do I have anything to add? Only that I obeyed my king, my kind. I was not faithless. Should I be punished for that? It is true, the pictures creaking through the spindle cause me pain. I know the powder we coated our fingers with made us thirsty and sometimes cruel. But I was born with a spirit like you. I have woken, you see, and I wish to be made new. Oh, thank you. I love that poem so much. Thank you. You wrote this poem, of course, as you were mentioning pre-Trump yeah. and um, under the Bush presidency. And now to return to some of these ideas about what it means to be, quote unquote, a subject. You know, I feel so much more a cog in the machine than I did even back in 2008. I think I've always felt like that to some degree. And, and I wonder, I continue to wonder how to write about that. Mm hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I do, too. And it's really hard to know because one doesn't want to feel merely topical as a writer, I think, as a literary writer. Right. I mean, in my nonfiction, I'm very happy to be sometimes merely topical, you know, moment of the day. But certainly in my poems and my literary nonfiction, one wants to feel, you know, I want to feel that I'm writing something that, you know, can sort of stand beyond the moment of its circumstances, beyond the moment of its making. And there's something about what's happening right now. Um and that, you know, that feels so particularly insane and bonkers and therefore uh, of its own era, you know, in a way that's probably quite in contrast to a, a topic like fate, which feels, you know, universal and big and and all of that. But maybe it was our fate to arrive in this insane moment that we can that we we can't make more of. Well, I mean, you had that line in there, uh, which to me is the sort of the key question that we're kind of working on today is, you know, I obeyed my king. Should I be punished for that? Right. You know, yeah. um, what do you think? <laughs> well, you know, without giving it away, I definitely think this speaker is much more complicit than she thinks she is. Right. <laughs> I mean, I was really interested in writing a poem, um, you know. I think as a poet, I, I'm sometimes frustrated by my proximity to the autobiographical eye, um, which obviously no one is forcing me into, but there's something about the way I write poems that does, you know, I do tend to write, you know, a slightly constructed eye. I would say all of my first person speakers are, are slightly fictional to me, at least, um, or they're fictions in the sense that they're made objects, made literary verbal artifacts. But I really was interested in writing during this, during this time, um, a first person who who found a lot of herself, who is opaque to herself in some way. Are you saying that the first person narrator is not always exactly the same as the author? <laughs> Newsflash. What right. is happening? <laughs> Shockingly, yes. Especially in poems. And actually when you write, I think especially, I'm going to wait or something. I think especially as a young woman writing poems, um, you are really associated with your first person. In my first book in particular, every poem was taken as autobiographical and a lot of them were really fictions of, a, of sort of literary fictions. But yeah, so I was really, I was really interested in this question of like, should we be punished for that? Like we sort of make talk ourselves into something with, you know, what we think are the right intention, you know, how much are we responsible for what we do not see? Right. And I think this is a very relevant, you know, question at the moment. And it's a really relevant question in all sorts of ways, not just um, not just toward, you know, politics and Trump and sort of, you know, national politics, but towards, I think, how we treat one another as individuals and groups. And it's still very much, you know, this is still a question I'm haunted by. I think fundamentally, 
that was the reason that I decided to become a reporter and embed in Iraq and and try to write about the war was that I felt a complicity for its beginning, even though I hadn't, you know, it wasn't my idea. Yeah, right. And I mean, I almost in a weird way, I almost felt more complicity under the bushes than I do now, I think, because I'm just so. And a war is such a particular thing that's being inflicted on another group of people. I think it's also sort of more explicit in some ways. I think that's really important to remember. And, you know, one does see a kind of liberal, oh, Trump is so much worse than Bush, you know, assessment being made sometimes somewhat cavalierly on Twitter. And, you know, I think that's, you know, we really have to, there was a, you know, Bush's, you know, George W. waged a really damaging war that, you know, the consequences of which we are still totaling up, right? Um, And it, it maybe wasn't, uh, the effects of it maybe weren't felt stateside, but they were felt in Iraq, right? They were felt in Afghanistan. And to me, that, that sense of complicity haunts me to this day as a writer. Um, so how do we turn that into, how do we turn that into art as writers in a way that doesn't feel, you know, kind of self-involved or just like, oh, you know, or, or sort of virtue signaling to use a term that I've, I really like that's, you know, kind of in use now, you know, how do we, how do we really make that into a deeply embedded question in a poem? And I think, I think it comes back to the fact that we all have moments in our lives where we think we're doing something, you know, we, we tell ourselves, a lot of this poem is about what kind of stories we tell ourselves as individuals and groups, right? The idea of story comes back in periodically, and that's something I'm, I'm still interested in. But, you know, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, Joan Didion said, but we also tell ourselves stories. I think part of what she meant is we also tell ourselves stories in order to feel better about how we live. Well, and it's at the end of the poem, it's sort of that section 11 is almost a, a confession. Do I have anything else to add? Right. Right. Which is how I think about that. And you ask, how much are we responsible for what we don't see? And then the very last lines, I have woken, you see, suggests that seeing is a choice that we can make, that the that the speaker is coming to a realization about. Yeah. Um, but which she's also quite tricky because she wants to be forgiven. <laughs> Right. 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 She she really wants to be forgiven. So she wants to be like, I mean, it's actually interesting in the context of the way the word woke is used now. Right. I mean, I wasn't thinking. Yeah, that's what I was exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) And which I don't think was particularly in vogue at the time that you wrote the poem. No, 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 not at all. Not certainly, you know, I wasn't woke enough to know if it was. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So you wrote about. Go ahead. No, this is exactly what this is about, is that kind of awakening. And then like, but what do you, what kinds of responsibilities do we drag with us, even if we do wake? And then how much are we kind of still wanting to like, you know, exonerate ourselves in a way that's um, a little bit, you know, a little bit problematic to use a word that's overused. You wrote a little bit about Me Too recently for the New York Times Magazine. And there you talked about how the bystander effect created an environment that made sexual harassment and abuse possible for years quote, you know, in which people are less likely to offer help to someone in distress if there are other people present, especially if the others are passive. Oh, that's such a great connection. I hadn't thought about these two pieces in connection to each other, but it's true that that piece of journalism is in a way very, very deeply connected to this poem. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm seeing my own preoccupations emerge. But yeah, I mean, I, I've been really haunted by... I've been really haunted by my own sense of complicity, right? Not not just thinking about the things that I experienced that I wish I hadn't had to experience as as a subject, but actually the moments when I normalized and, and the people whose behavior I normalized for years, right? And I was really haunted thinking the reason I wrote that piece was that there were a couple of people in my life in particular who, who some of whom I was you know, are now dead actually, but I was quite close to, and some of whom are still peers of mine who, um, you know, I sort of stood by and watched a lot of behavior that now I think, well, why was I doing that? Right. Um, so it's really fascinating how, how other people's presence changes, how we see the world. Um, a lot of my work, as you know, is very interested in, um, militancy in the Tamil community, both inside Sri Lanka and outside Sri Lanka. And, you know, sort of taking account of the ways in which I learned initially to read about that conflict and then considering the ways in which I had failed to see things that were omitted or left out and like sort of calling on myself to do a more rigorous kind of reading that allowed me to see a more complete picture. And then also kind of acknowledging that, 
quite likely I am failing repeatedly to see complete pictures because no one is ever giving you the complete picture. So the kind of homework that is required or the kind of rigor to see the whole thing, you know, I I was really, I think the early stories that I read and saw about the Tamil tigers who I frequently write about were very much in favor of their tactics and history and mission. And those stories like left a huge amount out. And I think a lot of, I'm interested in accounting for that, I think in some way, Um, while also looking at the fact that I remain critical of the state, that there are other players, you know, often we've talked a lot on the show about um, binaries of good and evil. And one of the things I like about your poem is that it takes this setting, right? You know, the the king, um, the king and his subjects. And we often think of that framework as kind of um, it's a fable. And so it's nuances necessarily flattened. And but but you take the setting and make it really complex And I think it's easy to, I don't know, if you look at, when I think of stories I read as a child about, oh, the tyrannical king and the people who rose up against them, or or I don't really think about the people who failed to rise up against them, right? That wasn't the story that we were paying attention to. I think there's a reason why this poem seems important now. And also, you know, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale has been made into this, you know, very successful uh, show now. And there seem to me some echoes between... Um, the two the 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 narrator in your poem is more complicit, r- r- less having something done to her, right? Mm-hmm. But there's still this sense of living under a sort of occupation in a way um, mm-hmm. that that seems important. Yeah, and I think you know I was trying to convey, and I hope that it's in there a little bit that you know she probably would have died, right? There's a real violence in the world around her, and there and there is a way in which. I think she felt at least, the speaker feels at least, that she would have died, right, if she hadn't, she kind of had to do this in some sense, which, you know, is partly justification and partly um, probably true. (laughs) That's, you know, insofar as I kind of know the speaker, that's how I end up thinking about her. Um, But yeah, I mean, The Handmaid's Tale just feels so incredibly relevant. And I think because it does really reckon with that same... I think I was trying to reckon with also what do the days feel like under occupation? Yeah, I was also reminded a little bit of, of course, of the lottery. Um, yeah. You know, you were a stranger once, too, and I brought rope. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah. And then I go back to wondering about fate. I mean, isn't it just like, the idea that I could be on the other side of that that line, that I am the stranger? And sometimes I am the stranger. Um, right? That that is so, that's in, in some ways accidents of history, yeah. And and it's curious to think about, I don't know, how to contend with that if if a character and we also had an episode where we talked about Trump and Shakespeare, right? And we talked about um Macbeth and we talked about Hamlet a little bit. And you know, when I think about my own tragic flaws and the older I get, the more I think I'm probably slightly aware of them in ways that maybe maybe I would even prefer not to be, right? Like that narrative that Like I am my own, I am my own fate. Am I choosing or am I, was I born this way? (laughs) Right. Like Mm -hmm. I was reading a few days ago, this piece about Bill Cosby on the Atlantic, which was sort of talking about how the pound cake speech helped lead to his downfall. And Mm -hmm. right. That's the sort of narrative of there was no way for Bill, Bill justice was going to come for Bill Cosby, which is definitely a story I prefer and yet also, of course, it took the choices of many, many, many individual people to hold them to account. Yeah, so obviously fate is such a huge and overwhelming topic. And I was thinking about two things, um, knowing that we were going to touch on it at least. And one was the etymology of fate, which is really fascinating to me, which has to, it comes from a Latin word um, for speaking, right? Which I had not known until recently. I sort of came across it for something else I was working on. This is why we bring the poets on for the for the language. And the daughter of the classicist, right? <laughs> like he's always tra- trained me to, my father was a, a classicist. And yeah, so, so for, I'm actually writing a little section about fate in the nonfiction book I'm working on so about, about the Greek fates. So I had looked it up, but it means, you know, that which has been spoken. It's a past tense. We, we bring it from, a, in particular, the, the past tense of the Latin word, hmm. which is to speak, which is fari. And then fatum is that which has been spoken, which wow. is just fascinating, right? This idea. So I think in terms of thinking about writing and, and your 
point, Sugi, about like, you know, how when we tell a story about, you know, Cosby and Me Too, like at, at which at what point do we think, well, that was always going to have been spoken, <laughs> right? And at what point is also does the act of speaking and storytelling change what is spoken? Um, and the other kind of, you know, concept of faith that is fascinating to me is is one that's less psychological, which is not so much that we are our own fates, but just that events hit us and change us, right? Which is not a very 20th, 21st century kind of understanding of fate. We like to think, especially in America, of ourselves as the shapers of fate, even if it's a fatal flaw. We kind of like, in some way, I think, the idea that it's our own fatal flaw that's leading to our our, our downfall, as opposed to, uh, you know, the random, the random fate that the fates give you when they cut the threads when you're born, you know, which is the, the myth of the Greek fates. You know, as soon as you're born, your your thread is already, they spin your thread and they cut it at the same time, which is such a devastating idea. Well, there's that, you know, that Calvinism is a, is a part of the American religious tradition that thinks about predestination and fate. Um, and it's sort of always in tension with our uh, our idea of individualism and individual action. You know, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna even get open up this subject. But you know, Marilyn Robinson has argued, has lectured, quite, written quite a bit about Calvinism, and also I, I I took a class once where she talked about Calvinism in Melville and particularly in Moby Dick. That was amazing. Yeah. She's amazing. I feel like she's like the last Calvinist, though. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe that's true. But, but those like things, I think she would argue that the the idea is still vest. It's still there in our culture. We don't maybe recognize it consciously. Yeah. She's she's obviously she is right, but I I do sometimes worry that the like Thoreauian model has. I think we could probably do with a little more Calvinism. Maybe. <laughs> Even though I'm yeah. sure. Calvinist myself. Actually, I hate Calvin. You know, I hate the idea of predestination personally. It makes me bridle. And I remember studying it in school and being like, this is just so wrong. Um, but but it, it might be a useful kind of Well, you know. in part, the, one of the interesting things about the way Calvinism has been used historically is to say, because Calvin said you could be predestined to be saved, but also predestined to be damned. If you think about it, you know, like the way the Dutch thought about, uh, you know, uh, Dutch settlers in South Africa thought that, uh, you know, the the people who lived there who were from South Africa were destined to be damned, right, because of Calvinism. It was used to justify racism, but also it can be used to justify misogyny and sexism, you know. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's terrifying, I think, to the the 21st, you know, anyone who kind of came of age in an era of, you know, postmodernism and thinking about the historical contingency of the perspective of, you know, the absolute, you know, even if one has sort of a sneaking affection, as, as I do for certain kinds of absolute values like beauty, you know, I think when you think about something that uh, any kind of thought system that believes it knows everything, right, that believes that there is something fixed to begin with, it's we, we've seen how just how dangerous that is, how easily we can use it against one another. Um, it's like faded, you know, as if those systems are faded to be poorly used. Well, I mean, in a way, you hear it in the language of the of the harassers and you know when you're looking at uh, Harvey Weinstein or somebody like that that like the people their victims were wanted to participate anyway and were destined to participate you write of course about bodies and health and I'm curious about how you think about individual and collective power and free will broadly in your work in addition to that in Genetics, the language of talking about genetics, which has become really popular, you know, to test one's own family history, et cetera, et cetera, um, has become really popular in recent years. And people often talk about genetics as, a, you know, genetics, genetics are our fate. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a theme of Sun and Days. I'm really in Sun and Days and in this nonfiction book about illness that I'm working on now, I'm really trying to dig up and complicate some of the but sort of buckets of thinking we have about the mind and the body and fate and genetics. And, you know, if every era has its governing scientific, um, you know, kind of poorly understood scientific idea by which it measures everything, right? I mean, heredity and genetics was probably the late 19th century and then in different ways, more sophisticated ways, the 20th century. And I actually think really now we're seeing that it's something, it's not just genetics, but also what scientists call epigenetics that matter, which is mm-hmm. to say, I think we're moving into an era in, in science and medicine where we understand that, you know, what well, Mark was more right than maybe we thought he was, right? That actually how life comes at us and affects us, some of which is 
characterological and some of which is like a virus or a bacterial infection, right, um, or a war, um, how that all hits us sort of changes the, our expression of our genes, right, and ways that can last for generations. So, mm-hmm. you know, to me, this is very rich for, for the writer. Um, and it kind of corresponds to what I feel is true as a writer, which is that there are givens or what I like to feel is true, right? There are givens, but there are, there is some way in which we can negotiate around givens, but it's such an American desire, right? To be like, I just do it, right? Like just will yourself through the moment. And a lot of sun and days is about trying to reckon with the fact that there are experiences we can't will ourselves out of. And no one, we don't like to talk about that. Right. (laughs) And illness is one of them. And we don't like to look at, you know, it resonates in so many directions in terms of thinking about privilege and class and race, but you know, the body, like we don't, you know, we, you know, until I got sick, other people's illnesses were very obscure to me, right? Other people's disabilities were sort of, I understood they were there, but I, but I took them as faded in some way that made me think that the person who was experiencing it, just that was their life. Right. And then when I got sick, you know, it was such an awakening for me to realize, oh, no, any any person in any subjectivity is always struggling with that subjectivity, that subject position, right? You know what I mean? So I was really trying to write poems that, and lyric essays in that book that really explored, you know, what what is coherent about us? You know, what does remain when under duress, you know, in war, with a bacterial infection that invades your nervous system and your brain, which is what happened to me. I had Lyme disease that became very seriously neurological and completely changed who I was. Um, and yet there was some, as I talk about it, kind of low pilot flame that kept saying, no, 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 this is not who you are. It's some other you, right? Which huh. did suggest kind of coherent. Yeah. <laughs> I love that image of a low pilot flame. That's really great. So interesting, that sense of uh, the, uh, exterior events. I guess my closest thing, since I have not been ill in that way, was I. what we were talking, though, what it reminded me of was uh, sitting in a, in a Humvee, waiting mm. to go outside of the gates in, uh, of a base in 2006 when I knew that it was really, really dangerous and, and people could get blown up and killed very easily, and that might happen to me, and feeling how stupid it was that I was doing that. Like, how could I be participating in this? This isn't me. I'm not doing this. There's some part of me that says that I can't actually really be doing this. It was a very strange uh, dissonance. And I think one way that we sometimes find ways around that is by having a witness. And, I mean, Meg, I remember the year that we we're living um, in very close proximity, like a floor apart from each other. I was uh, inexplicably sick a couple times. And you sort of said very generously, like, do you want me to come to the doctor with you? And um, and eventually it resolved sort of pretty smoothly, but it was also just sort of this feeling of, I was sort of like, Megan would see me if, <laughs> if a doctor didn't, if a doctor didn't see right. me, Megan would be my witness um, so that I could believe my own story about, um, about that, who I am, and uh, whether that is changing in some moment. And, and that's, I think, why we read. I mean, really, that is what books become for us. And I did read a ton of illness memoirs during this period, and they were very, really comforting to me. Um, you know, not in just a pure kind of therapeutic level, but in a deeply existential, almost metaphysical level, right? That, like, no, we can, this act of trying to put very confusing and complicated experiences into language is really one of the profound acts of witness we have. And it really is meaningful in times like these. Well, speaking of reading, maybe you could read one more poem for us to send off this episode, maybe like uh, on the theme of illness. Uh, Um, Absolutely. Um, So I think I'll read a poem called Idiopathic Illness, which is really on the topic that we're talking about. It's Idiopathic is the medical word for we don't know what's wrong with you. This is idiopathic illness. I threw hollowed self at your robust, went for IV drips, mercury detoxes, cilantro smoothies. I pressed my lips to you, fed you kale, spooned down coconut oil. I fasted for blood sugar, underboomed the carbs, chased ketosis, urine stripped and slip checked. Baked raw cocoa and mint and masticated pig thyroids. You were contemporary, 
toxic. I can't remember what you were. You're in my brain, inflaming it, using up the glutathione. I read about you on the internet and my doctor agreed. Just take more, he urged, and more. You slipped into each cell. I went after you with a thinking inside and medical mushrooms for maximum womb. I plumbed you without getting to never more. Oh, doom. You were a disease without name. I was a body gone flame. Together we twitched and the acupuncturist said, it looks difficult. Stay calmish. What can be said? I came without a warranty. Stripped of me or me-ishness, I was a will in a subpar body. I waxed toward all that waned inside. Ah, uh, so good. <laughs> oh, doom. <laughs> oh, doom. Well, there's fate, right? Megan, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, you guys. It was really great. And um, to all our listeners, stay calmish out there. Um, I feel like I'm going to repeat that to myself all day. Well, we'll really um, look forward to reading the nonfiction book as well and uh, Sun and Days. And we will post links to those poems on our website. Thanks again, Meg. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. And that other music we played? Yep, you guessed it. It's from The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen, which I bought and still own on the original vinyl. A fact that faithfully does not impress my kids. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorites podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. We'll post a link to the books we reference this week on our LitHub show page on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading. And hey, 